0: It's my last episode for the year, folks. I'm going to take a couple of weeks off, not too many, but just enough to get a bit of headspace. And I'll be back in January. In the meantime, please do send through any questions you have for me for my Ask Me Anything episode. You can email me, poetry says pod at gmail.com. You can send me a voice message. You can write it out. Love to hear from you. Anything you want to ask, I'm here to respond. Speaking of, I already had a couple of fun responses to the last episode being bad. Seems uh, my characterization of what it's like inside a strip club was unsatisfactory to a couple of people. Probably the issue here is that the only strip club I've ever been to was the canberra institution sensations in amongst the warehouses of mitchell there is this uh this place exists and it's kind of like what if a bikey gang ran a life drawing class that's kind of the vibe so yeah a bit off more than i could chew with that extended metaphor there I had a long email from Matt, who seems upset about various aspects of what I said. (laughs) Matt, you're just going to have to fly me to LA so that we can have this conversation in person, because there's too much to address. But at the end of his email, Matt was saying how much he appreciates the opportunity to think through this stuff, and that's all I'm aiming for, just putting ideas out there. If I get you to think about something in a new way, my job is done. Speaking of LA and movies, I also had a lovely email from Wallace who was talking about the clips that I include sometimes from movies, which I will continue to do until Paramount comes for me, and how when you listen to the lines on their own like that, you start to realise that you can actually scan them, that there's a rhythm there. And he mentioned Coleridge's definition of poetry, which I had actually never heard before, the best words in the best order. So I've been sitting here thinking about memorable movie lines and how to scan them. I don't usually do this in public, but it's Christmas. I'm crazy. It's the end of the year. So here goes Dark Victory, the movie that I was pulling from last week, has the, the line that gets quoted from that is when she says, I'm young and strong and nothing can touch me. I think that's iambic tetrameter, but I'm not sure how. I tried to scan it and it's like, okay, there's definitely two iams to start with, but then it sort of falls apart. Maybe it's two amphibracs. Is that a thing that can happen? I was thinking about Jurassic Park. They're flocking this way. Maybe their flocking is an amphibrac and this way is a trochee. Does that work? Harry Met Sally. Men and women can't be friends. Clearly, that is a headless four-beat line, right? Clearly. I'm definitely right about that. And then I was trying to figure out, you killed my father, prepared to die. But I, I don't know. <laughs> so I've bitten off way more than I can chew here. Look, the good thing about sitting here trying to figure out how to scan famous lines from movies, the good thing about getting interested in this stuff, for a person like me with an obsessive brain, is that when I'm trying to figure this stuff out, I'm not obsessing about other things. Other things are safe from my obsessive mind, and this is a very good thing. But if you actually want to hear from somebody who knows what they're talking about, and you're missing your scheduled roster of Poetry Says, I would recommend... Uh, Checking out a little podcast called Versecraft, this guy from, I think he's in Ohio, called Elijah Blumoff, has put together this show. I think there's only something like 10, 11 episodes out so far. It's totally different from what I do here. It's completely scripted, and he looks at a poem, and he talks about the metrical and formal elements of it, and how they all work, and how they contribute to the meaning. And he does a super close reading, and it's super fucking smart, and I can barely keep up with it. I think maybe 30% of what Elijah says penetrates. But it's enjoyable, and it's interesting, and occasionally I learn something. So that's one of my recommendations. My other recommendation, which I keep meaning to make, and maybe I have mentioned this show before, is um, the London Review of Books has a podcast. Mostly it is deadly boring and just promotional of the LRB, but there's a series within it called Close Readings, which Adam Ford put me onto. Thank you forever for that, Adam. The hosts are Seamus Perry and Mark Ford, and I'm obsessed with this show not only because it gives a really fantastic overview of a poet and their life and their work, but because the chemistry between these two is totally insane. Seamus Perry is this very kind of straight-laced, he does a lot of kind of hesitant speaking and he's he's very nervous. And Mark Ford is this incredibly well-educated but very cheeky gay guy who finds any excuse to work in the word erotic to his reading of a poem, and every time he does it, Seamus Perry just kind of disintegrates, and I'm obsessed with them. I love them. They're about to start a new series called, I think, The Long and the Short, where they look at long poems and short stories. So I can't wait for that. I hope it comes out while I'm on holiday, because that will be very fun to listen to. With that admin out of the way, I want to turn to today's guest, Winnie Dunn editor extraordinaire, general manager of Sweatshop Literacy Movement, which is an organization based out of Western Sydney. Winnie is a powerhouse. She's just edited and published her sixth anthology, which is called Another Australia. We talk quite a bit about the content of that anthology in this interview, how it came together and her approach to editing, but the reason I appreciated talking to Winnie so much is this was my opportunity to get into some of the questions that I've been wanting to ask for years on this show around writing and race. It's a tough conversation to have, not one that everyone has the energy for. But to me, it seems like one of the most important conversations that we could be having. And I wish I could talk about it more on this show. And to that end, I think I I just want to finish this intro by saying that if you do listen to this and you are a writer of colour and you'd like to respond in some way, whether it be by email or even coming on the show, I'm really, really open to continuing any element of this conversation because, yeah, this is this is the kind of stuff that I want to be digging into. But I also know that I cannot do it by myself. And so I was exceptionally grateful to Winnie for her time and her generosity And I continue to be amazed at the work that she is getting done. And I really hope that you enjoy listening to her as well. Thank you as always for listening, for writing in. And I can't wait to talk to you again in the new year. I read in the Sydney Morning Herald that you were once told you needed to get out of Western Sydney if you wanted to be taken seriously in the literary world. Mm. And because I, I think that's quite funny to start with, but um, because Another Australia is about kind of busting myths and challenging myths, I wondered if you could tell the audience a little bit about what are the myths around Western Sydney and what are the realities?
1: Yeah, well, yeah. Um... I grew up in a time where there was a lot of uh, myths and, and stereotypes about uh, Western Sydney, uh, particularly in the, the suburb. I grew up in uh, Mount Druitt, uh, which was known in the 2010s as a a place filled with uh, poverty and a lot of ethnics um, and a lot of... Uh, teenage pregnancies because there was a tv show at the time or a couple of decades beforehand called Plumpton high babies um and then during my time in high school there was also um the sbs show struggle street in which the first season was uh centered on a very kind of uh classic poverty porn stereotype uh, of Ma- of mount Andre, where it just had Uh, young people who were on Centrelink, uh, who were using drugs uh, recreationally um, and obviously had a lot of mental health problems and and issues with addiction. Mount Druitt in Struggle Street was very much centred as the kind of arse end of Western uh, Sydney or Sydney in general, uh, because the opening of that of oh, Struggle Street is a very picturesque Sydney harbor bridge and it zooms through uh Sydney and then it ends on a welcome to Mount Druitt sign and then a fart plays. <laughs> and nice. so yeah, that that was the myths of um Mount Jura and, and Western Sydney that I grew up around in. And so of course, when you grow up in that stereotype, you really don't think that that kind of arse end of Sydney is the place where real art and real literature can happen and, and take place, which is ironic because the reality of Western Sydney is that over, over 2 million people live in Western City. We make up the largest population uh, in New South Wales. And so we have so many languages, so many experiences, so many stories, uh, so many flavors. Um, and for all of that to be lost because of myths and stereotypes around around class and race uh, is, is is quite a tragedy for Australia, really.
0: Yeah, yeah. There's a, a really great paragraph in the piece in Another Australia by Elfresh the Lion, the hip-hop artist, and he writes, when I started getting known for releasing music and performing publicly, I would field questions from Australian music and entertainment media as well as Punjabi and Sikh media asking why I chose hip-hop I think what they were trying to say in a diplomatic way was, why was this Sikh kid making rap music and not working at a 7-Eleven or driving a taxi or studying to become a doctor, engineer, or lawyer? The connection between a young Sikh from Western Sydney and hip hop may not have made sense to people from the outside looking in, but to me, it is harmony. And I mean, I'm talking to you right now, you're in the sweatshop, literacy movement offices, you're in a, looks like a podcast studio to me, you got baffling. You've got you've got yes. you got the whole setup there. Like yes. clearly this is a this is a literary scene that you've built out there.
1: Well, absolutely. And again, talking about the realities of 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 art in Western Sydney, so many um writers and artists are from Western Sydney. I mean, you just quoted Elfresh, which is, uh, he's one of uh, Australia's greatest and well-known rappers in this country. And he's from Campbelltown, which is Southwest Sydney. And we have award-winning authors like Dr. Michael Mohammed Ahmed, who's the founding director of Sweatshop, uh, Amani Hader, who wrote The Mother Wound, which is a tragic but expertly-written memoir um, about the the crime that she experienced of her father murdering her mother. Uh, we have, you know, legends like Dr Randa abdul um, who ha- who's, uh, does my head look big in this? I read uh, in primary school um, and she's from Blacktown. You know, so many incredible writers um, and artists that I get to work with every day uh, are from Western Sydney. And, and I don't think that's a coincidence. I, I think we have a, a lot to say and a lot to reclaim. Um, Mm. based on those myths that we've been, that have been forced upon us for a very long time. Mm.
0: You're being very humble about the work, your own work, your own place in the work there, I feel, but I'm going to press you a little on that and about your role as an anthology editor. This is your sixth, I believe, started out with the big black thing back in 2018 and then moved through Sweatshop Women after Australia and now another Australia. And you did, a, you did a 2021 interview for the Garrett. I'm drawing a lot on mm-hmm. other interviews that you've done. And you talked about what you described as the racism inherent in writers being praised simply because they're part of a marginalized group. Mm-hmm. And I really pricked up my ears when you started to talk about this. And you talked about how your explicit goal is to improve the work of writers that you edit, but you don't want to just give them, as you phrased it, pats on the head. Um, and to me, I don't, I don't know if you'd agree with this, but it doesn't seem like an overstatement to say that that attitude of pats on the head is still fairly persistent. What do you think would need to change for that to start to shift?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's, it's funny that you bring that up because, um, I'm actually reading the the full manuscript of, um, The Racial Politics of Multiculturalism in Australia uh, by Professor Ghassan Hajj, who's an Arab-Australian anthropologist. And it's a republication of his seminal work, so White Nation um, and Against Paranoid Nationalism and some later writings, which will come out in Sweatshop in in 2023. And this was back in like the early mid-90s. He was talking about this fantasy of, of white of of whiteness, a a fantasy of a white nation where white people in Australia centre themselves in conversations around uh, race um, and ethnicity and nationalism. Um, And I feel like it is the same within literature. Literature is seen as a predominantly Western English canon. And so whenever we're talking about writers uh, so many of them are, are put in a, are put in this limited box of of what writing should be and what writing looks like and and what writing sounds like and that's usually a very kind of monocultural lens on literature but my goal as an editor uh throughout learning kind of the basics in 2018 when I first started search up with the big black thing chapter one all the way up to another Australia which was basically uh very, uh, renowned and award-winning um, Australian um, authors of colour and and Indigenous writers. My whole goal throughout that entire process over the six anthologies is to showcase that there's not one monocultural way of literature and how literatures can be represented or can be undertaken in Australia. I mean, we are multicultural and we are diverse, whether Uh, people who centre themselves in that conversation want to admit that or not or want to control that or not. Um, Australia is what it is. Um, And so kind of really showcasing the realities and the complexities um, of the Australian experience in a nuanced and diverse way has always been my goal in those anthologies. And I hope when readers pick up another Australia or Switch Up Women uh, volume two that they're able to see that.
0: So if we think about anthologies that are put out by major presses, for example, Best Essays, Best Poems, whatever, do you feel like there's been a shift over the last little while away from the pats on the head, the tokenistic attitude of the people who put those those anthologies together? Or do you feel like an anthology like Another Australia is – still the only kind of thing doing that work.
1: Yeah. No. I mean, I, I definitely followed in the footsteps of um, writers and editors like uh, Dr. Randa Abdul-Fattah and Sarah Saleh, who did Arab Australian Other, uh, which was a beautiful collection of um, Arab Australian stories um, that was printed by, I believe, Pan Macmillan because for some reason Black Ink in their whole history of doing the Growing Up series uh, just kind of skipped over <laughs> the Arab Australian um, experience, and when they went to Black Ink, they I, I, I believe there was some tension around publishing it, and so they went to Pan Macmillan um, instead. But also, like in saying that, you know, there have been anthologies of um, growing up Asian in Australia, which was edited by um, Alice Pung, and that was kind of one of the first to come out and then there's growing up aboriginal in australia those are very kind of very specific like here are the intersections of being um an ethnicity and then being australian and then what that means uh you know growing up african uh edited by maxine venable clark so we've been doing it but now we're just seeing anthologies where it's not so technical it's not like i am this and i am that and these are the lines and these are the intersections and we're just going to talk about that Whereas in um, an anthology series like Meet Me um, at the Intersection, which is completely LGBTIAQ plus writers or flock um, edited by Ellen Van Nieuwen, which is, again, just all um, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander writers. And then with After Australia and Another Australia, After Australia being a um, kind of speculative fiction anthology and Another Australia uh, being this eclectic collection of poetry, essay, short story, illustrations. Um, To me, there's this movement now into a more um, diverse genre where we're able to play with language and play with writing and and play with themes and not be so bogged down uh, by intersectional identities. I feel like that groundwork has been done and and, um, anthologies like After Australia and Another Australia really show um, kind of the next step for culturally and linguistically diverse and Indigenous writers, which is that first and foremost we are writers and we can play with language and storytelling in really unique ways that are not just centred or constricted uh, into our intersectional identities.
0: Yeah, I suppose that like one of the things that i try to think about when I'm interviewing writers of color on here is like the pressure of representation and that like extra layer of work that writers of color have to do, Where it's like, I'm a writer, but I'm going to, my work is going to be seen through this particular lens. And so I've had guests on the show talk about like that working in, in various ways, you know, they feel the pressure to match that expectation, but then they also and then they want to work against that as well. But then is there is there the permission to do that? So it's exciting to see an anthology like this. It is working. That is a next step.
1: Yeah, yes. thank you. I think it's yeah. about releasing that um, burden of representation and reclaiming representations that we want in our own way. Like I can't think of a more perfect example in another Australia than Nadi Simpson, who wrote her poems completely the Yularai language and provided not a direct translation but a creative translation of what the ULRI meant um within her prelude, interlude and, and epilogue, uh, which is really, really fantastic and really grounds another Australia, the anthology, particularly um, in the reality that um, this very complicated nation was and always will be Aboriginal land. And so yeah, again, it Nadi took that responsibility upon Herself, but in such a hopeful and, and creative way, rather than um, feeling forced to have to represent herself and, and her community. So, I, I think readers will definitely see the difference in that when, when they approach another Australia, maybe in comparison to other books that came before where there was that kind of pressure or burden to be overly uh, representative and to kind of lose the craft a little bit of writing.
0: What do you mean, lose the craft?
1: Yeah, well, I mean, um, Toni Morrison talks about, you know, racism being a distraction to writing and and creativity and um, being that burden of representation uh, is a distraction because as a writer, you can kind of lose yourself um, in that kind of representation or forcing yourself to try and represent things in a certain way, rather than just really enjoying and studying and fostering your own craft as a a creative writer. Like there's been a lot of movement recently in Australian literature that's been surrounded by um, memoirs and and a lot of people of colour writing memoirs. And it's fine, but memoirs historically were for much older people who had lived a full life <laughs> and have been able to share their experiences. Right. But for some reason, and I'm talking as a 27-year-old Pacific Islander woman, like for some reason you have 22-year-olds writing memoirs as if they've lived this whole full life, <laughs> um, but they've just barely gotten started. I mean, I I feel like I've just barely gotten started. And so, you know, I, I hope anthologies like After Australia and Another Australia um, and Meet Me at the Intersection and and, and anthologies of that nature um, can really recenter a, a more craft focused way of of writing and and producing work in this country.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I totally, totally know what you mean there. Um, I'm thinking too about Annie Tefew's piece. Uh, Anne Marie was a guest on this show over a year ago now, and I was delighted to see her piece in here. She She's writing about her uncle, Edward Thomas Tafew, who was the second to last person to be hanged in um, a Tarot in New Zealand. And it's a mix. It's a memoir, yes, but it's also it's a writing back to a poem by James K. Baxter, which kind of uses Edward Thomas's story uh, to essentially make him look like a, a great and important poet. Um, mm-hmm. And he... Uh, Juxtaposes that with, with an erasure poem, her own. And then she uses interview as well with Edward Thomas Tiffuse, uh lawyer and mm-hmm. with Moana Jackson, who's a, a lawyer who really understands constitutional law and the Treaty of Waitangi in New Zealand. So, um, yeah, when you're talking about craft, it's like it's also freedom to play, freedom to experiment, look at these stories and all the complication.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, thank you for that. Annie's piece is, I think, the most perfect example of craft-centred writing in the sense that not only has she blended um, essay and poetry, uh, but interview. She even plays with the size of the text. you know um the 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 latin origin of of the word text um actually means to weave and so that's also where the name kind of sweatshop come comes from in in terms of sweatshops being places where uh marginalized people are forced to stitch clothing for or fabric for very limited amounts of money and it's a historically disempowering space but sweatshop we use the word um I, I would say, subversively um, to make the idea of a sweatshop where we're stitching words a place of empowerment and a place of critical thinking. And so, um, yeah, Annie's piece is just a perfect example of craft-centred writing. Um, and the fact that she's writing about um, her uncle, who was the last Maori man to be hung uh, by the Crown of New Zealand, is not, I wouldn't say secondary to that, but it is kind of the that story, that traumatic story comes about through this kind of play of all of these genres that it creates this real sense of healing. I mean, the metonym that she c- is constantly bringing up throughout the poetic essay is this idea of unty- untying generational knots and untying this generational trauma, not only in the way that she tells the story, but how the words appear on the page. As well, so yeah, Annie's It was so exciting to have Annie, also in particular, you know, being uh, a Pacific Islander, Australian, Pacific Australian myself. Um, just as just as um, she's Maori Australian. You know, our communities are so close, uh, and to have that representation within the anthology was just really beautiful. And her her piece really stands out as one of those craft excellently crafted stories
0: i really want to focus more on you now winnie because you're a very fascinating figure to me when i first approached you maybe it was probably the middle of of 2021 um you were very gracious and you said yeah great loves to do an interview but why don't you talk to one of my writers who i'm including in this anthology and mm-hmm. I did, and it was wonderful. But since then, I've been like, thank no, you by the way. But what about Winnie? And and like, what is she doing there? Because you're so young, and you seem to have devoted already a huge amount of your life to, like I said, um, building up the literary culture around you. First of all, just concretely, how much of your life is actually devoted to running sweatshops?
1: Yeah. So on a practical level, uh, myself and Dr. Michael Muhammad Ahmed run sweatshop uh, four days a week, and then we freelance uh, one one or two days um, out of that week. Uh, one um, is just because me, myself and uh, Dr. Ahmed are artists and writers as well. And so we don't want to be too constrained by a very classical kind of nine to five working schedule. Um, and so we make sacrifices in that regard to be able to do our writing but also sweatshop is a is a literacy movement made by artists for artists and so we always want to center um, creative writing uh, and being artists um, in everything that we do and so thank you for that that was
0: really generous (laughs)
1: Um,
0: (laughs) no 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 I don't think I'm being generous at all (laughs) no
1: no I don't think I'm overstating Um, things (laughs) yeah so in terms of why, um, why I joined Sweatshop, um, why I've wanted to build, help build up this kind of creative momentum of uh, Indigenous writers and writers of color in Western Sydney, learning about the craft of writing, um, is because that's what I wanted to do, uh, way before I even joined Sweatshop. But I just felt like I never got the opportunity to, and it seemed like such a far-fetched notion or idea for me that I could um, make something of myself as an artist. Uh, you know, because we were just talking about all those stereotypes around Western Sydney. And those are really disempowering. And so mm-hmm. you start to see yourself in a in a in a very limited way. And then also myself as as a Pacific Islander, the other very um limiting narrative was committed by the actor Chris Lilly, who did Summer High Thai and Jonah from Tonga, which was very um demonizing stereotypical humiliating um stereotypes of of tongan australians and more broadly pacific islanders uh, in australia and so again is then there's that other layer of just limiting yourself and seeing yourself in a very limited way and so it wasn't it wasn't until i saw Sweatshop and actually saw dr michael mohammed ahmed who was the first kind of other person of colour that I saw in, in an academic institution, that I realised writing and art could be a possibility for me. And that is a phenomenon called mirroring, uh, which was coined uh, by the African-American feminist and scholar, uh, Bell Hooks, um, who talks about the act of mirroring, seeing yourself in a position of power um, as an empowering tool to then move out of, limiting beliefs and stereotypes that you have about yourself as a very empowering gesture. Um, she uses this example of a young African-American boy who Barack Obama, who was the then president of America, bent down in front of and let the little boy touch his hair. Um, and it's a very weird photo. It, it it doesn't look staged. It just looks like something that was captured in the moment. Um, and the background to that image is that the, the little African-American child had asked President Barack Obama, he was allowed to ask him one question and his question was, is your hair like mine? And then the president just bent down and said, touch it, see, see for yourself. Um, and and that child then saw himself, um, you know, touched his hair, felt that it was the same as his, and he saw himself as one day being the President of the United States because somebody else like him had already done it. And so that's the kind of empowerment that I Want to pass on to others in my work at Sweatshop, and which is why I, I find the anthology or the collection of all those writers so fruitful um, and kind of the product of mirroring. Because if Dr. Michael Muhammad Ahmed can open that pathway for me, I feel like it's my not only my responsibility, but my privilege to be able to open pathways um, for other young emerging writers of colour and and Indigenous writers to um, see themselves uh, in Australian literature.
0: Yeah, I liked what you said in your, you you edited an issue of Cordite and at the end, at the end of your editorial, you said, if Chris Lilly can do it, we can undo it, which seems fair. You know, Chris Lily, just one guy. He just—I mean, who remembers Chris Lily?
1: <laughs> no, absolutely, and he's just one guy. And then, uh, well, uh, you've done your research. Thank you so much. But now I'm finding it so interesting that um, in that brown face uh, edition, I was talking about undoing, and Annie was talking about untying, in, in another Australia, yes, it seems yeah. to be a very uh, <laughs> in, indigenous. Uh, or Trans-Indigenous way of understanding yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, trauma and how to approach it. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Well, on that, actually, another of the myths that I've noticed that you have challenged a couple of times in what you've said is this myth of the writer as a lone genius. Mm-hmm. And I think writers as a community are pretty attached to the idea that we work alone, we fight with each other a lot, we don't support one another's work. You obviously have a pretty different experience of this. What does it look like for you day to day?
1: It's inherent in Sweatshop's kind of larger title, you know, Sweatshop Literacy Movement. We're a movement, we're a collective, we're a group of people who are teaching each other and empowering each other to tell stories and to, and to tell stories that create original contributions to knowledge. And that's the purpose of of literature, to create that original contribution to knowledge and also culturally speaking um we tell stories in community like in in in, in an actual circle it's called the the process of that is called And so it's basically where everyone sits in a circle, everyone's equal, they tell stories and they respond to those stories. Uh, um, A quote-unquote written form of that would be the Tongan um, natu, which is a large sheet of mulberry bark that's beaten down into flat sheets, into strips. The women in the villages will all do it and then they'll get together on a Friday or a Saturday and put the strips together and then start painting the history of Tonga Onto those sheets together, and they're constantly talking and gossiping throughout this this painting session. They're constantly bringing their work that they've made uh, separately together, um, and so I find I've taken that kind of Dalinor knuckle making process into the way that I approach making anthologies because it really is the same thing. It's all these separate writers, all these separate people or these separate stories but we all come together and we all get printed into this book together and we're all able to create original contributions to knowledge that really showcase the realities of Australia and the realities of our experience because they're together like if you only read Sasanke <laughs> um essay um, in Another Australia where she's talking about the similarities and differences between apartheid South Africa and the kind of unspoken apartheid state between the white nation of Australia and the uh, Indigenous uh, reality and origin of Australia, that's only one perspective. Whereas in once you pair that with Osman Faruqi's piece where he's really talking about the history of, of Pakistan and India and how that, that rippled all the way out through the world Into Australia to not only affect the way that Australia is today, but also migrant and Indigenous solidarity and um, conversation. Sasanke and Osman's pieces go really well together, but if you only read them separately, you're not getting a very overall, deeper picture of Australia unless you kind of read them together in the anthology. And so um, that's what I really love about anthologies and about my work at Sweatshop is that it's taking away that very i would say white english centered myth of of a lone genius who just writes in a cave um you know this country in particular is thousands and thousands of years old and all of the stories that were being told were told in community and and told together
0: yeah i mean and like i i just really appreciate the opportunity to ask you some of these questions too because it's work on your behalf to feel this stuff and um i'm hyper aware of that in in doing interviews like this where we're like actually talking about race at the same time like it's kind of some sometimes it's like isn't this kind of the only thing we have to talk about as australians like we pretty much just need to figure this one out before we can do anything
1: no <laughs> so, absolutely yeah. and um yeah. we're kind of we're kind of more in front of the um gender conversation I would I would say than the race conversation where I feel like in in America it's the opposite they're, they're more kind of on top of <laughs>
0: that's interesting the, yeah the race I,
1: conversation than the gender conversation
0: I feel like the gender um, conversation has moved lightning fast but we we still just have like basic ABCs to figure out when it comes yeah to race. No, and you know absolutely. obviously this with with the the referendum around the voice coming up as well it's just like
1: yeah, but again it's it's about learning together, right? Mm-hmm. Like I I'm not here to demonize one certain section of Australia or to uh place one certain aspect of Australia on a pedestal. All I'm saying is that if we actually just have these conversations in a realistic and nuanced way and we engage in kind of active listening uh with one another which is what we which is what we do at sweatshop and which is what uh professor gatan haj um talks about as a way to kind of navigate the really complicated discussions around race and nationalism and and racism in this country um active listening is the way that we can kind of resolve those problems and so i feel like podcasts are really great for that
0: (laughs) because
1: hey. they definitely require active listening yeah so,
0: yeah look you know, I know you're we're washing- doing
1: part Alice
0: <laughs> <laughs> I know you're washing up walking the dog uh maybe doing some Pilates there but you're also listening to us and we love that all right last last sort of line of questioning this might be the hardest for you to answer what about your own writing Winnie where does it <laughs> where does it fit in because I know that you're a writer too I've read your poems and thank you. And um, I know you poetry- have a novel in the I know you have a novel in the works, too.
1: I do. Well, poetry is um the 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 genre and and the process of writing that I navigated naturally towards because um in in Tongan culture, we the language itself is spoken almost entirely in metaphors. <laughs> um really? and the, yeah and wow. so you never in Tongan language me actually like I, I speak Tongan I don't but well from what I've heard from my aunties and, and um and my grandmother, is that it's spoken entirely in metaphors because it's actually rude to ask somebody a direct question. And so you speak through metaphors to kind of engage with a person and and ask them a question in a kind of a a roundabout way. Um, And Queen Salote, who's kind of the most um, loved uh, monarch in Tonga, um, was a very, very gifted poet, and she crafted the poetry of, of movement uh, which is the type of dance um with her own poetry that she wrote and so um yeah when i first started writing when i first joined switch Shop, i was writing poetry only free verse I, I i'd have to say um and then i learned a lot about narrative structure and plot and action and sentence structure and, and i've read just so much work by by other Australian authors and I worked with so many emerging writers of color not only in the sweatshop workshops but in Western Sydney High schools where we run writing workshops as well and just feeling really inspired by their writing and 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 their work and so yeah poetry I haven't written it in a long time which is why I think when you asked me in 2021 I shied away <laughs> <laughs> from com- from coming on the show but because poetry is, is so integral to, to my culture uh, I hope one day I can return to it but in the meantime I am working um, on my first debut novel which should be out in 2024 it's called a uh, dirt poor islanders, and it's a, it's basically a coming of age um novel of a young mixed race Tongan Australian um girl who is trying to navigate her place in Australia as somebody who, who was not only born in Australia but her parents were born in Australia, and so what does it mean still as somebody who's third generation and kind of very self hating about her culture to come to terms with her complicated identity. And really, more personally, a very complicated, very large family. Um, And so that's the novel I'm working on. But in the meantime, I really hope listeners will read Another Australia because um, Shirley Lee and Sarah Saleh, uh, who's the award-winning poet, who are both in Another Australia, their debut novels are coming out next year. Uh, Shirley's is coming out in March. It's called Funny Ethnics, um, which will be really amazing when it comes out. Um so proud of her. And then Sarah Sutherland is coming out later next year, Songs for the Dead and the Living. And she has a beautiful short story in another Australia about this big Lebanese wedding. And so, yeah, I, I hope readers enjoy kind of what the next generation of Australian writers have to offer, which I feel like is coming with Shirley very, very soon.
0: You're a master. You're a master at focusing away from yourself and onto everybody else's work. <laughs>
1: Well, again, that's also very cultural as well. If I could just beat <laughs> to you in metaphors, I uh, definitely would. But, no, yeah, no, no. no, thank thank you so much for um, championing me and being really supportive of my work and um, saying such wonderful things. I really appreciate it.
0: Oh, look, I mean, like, the work that you're doing is mind-blowing. And I I just, yeah, I'm sure you're aware of it. That, of, of the impact that it's happening, but like I hope that you, I hope that you really feel that as well. So,
1: yeah. oh no, thank you so much. I, I, I always still feel like um, I have a, I have a lot to learn, um, and I, and I, you know, it's a real, it's also a real privilege to be able to learn um, and to be an artist. I think, especially considering because I was the first person in my family to receive an ATAR. I'm the first person in my family to go to university. And so um I don't take um all of my success as an artist and all of my education um as an artist for granted. And I, I feel like that's why I'm I'm a bit of a deflector because I just wanna bring everyone up yeah, <laughs> with me um as I'm as I'm going along. But yeah,
0: yeah that makes um, sense
1: thank you so much and Alice what about you like what 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 are you working on writing wise why poetry for you um why conversations <laughs> with poets and uh, other poets
0: that, wait a minute <laughs>
1: <laughs> just
0: turning the <laughs> it's
1: my podcast now no I'm joking. <laughs> sweet sweet oh
0: please